Thank you so much for coming. It's great to see you all. I'm Tim Dieppe, Head of Public Policy here at Chris Concern. And the topic today is legislating morality, um, which is an interesting question, isn't it? Right. Um, the talk is structured in three broad parts. First of all, we're going to ask the question, what are laws for? Um, and then when we've talked through that, we will think about some objections to the kind of ideas that I'm talking about. And then we'll talk about some policy implications. Why do we have laws? Is anyone brave enough to volunteer any ideas at this point? Yeah, go on. Good life in society, that's all right, yep, that, that, that's, that's pretty catch-all, that's right, any other ideas? Keep the peace, Keep the peace. yep, great idea. Protect people. Protect people, yes, that's good. Address market failure. Address market failure, wow, that's a good one, yep, like that one, there comes, that's from a pensioner, pension expert, the actuary says that. Um, rulers like making rules. Rulers like making rules, of course they do, yeah, make a few too many, arguably. Um, today, any other ideas? Prevent anarchy. Prevent anarchy. Yes, w without laws we would have anarchy. That's fair enough, probably. Punish, As, wrongdoing. punish, punish wrongdoing. Absolutely, yeah. Which, um, and another way of phrasing that would be to administer justice, I suppose, wouldn't it? Yeah. Is that is that enough ideas at the moment? Probably is. Any any, any ideas? No. Let's see what I had. I had that one first. Um, punish crime, um, protect people from harm, somebody said that, didn't they? So they got that one. Uh, protect society, I think we had that idea amongst us. Protect the environment, you all missed that one. No, nobody environmentalists around here? No? Um, that's another aspect. Um, encourage practices that benefit society, I think you covered that sort of one. Redistribute wealth, that's one aim of some laws, some people suggest, yeah. Um, raise taxes to fund state operations. That, that requires laws, doesn't it? And state operations require taxes. So that's another whole aspect of law um, that goes on. So, and um, in some ways, actually, to protect society or do what benefits society, the kind of thing you said, covers all those things, right? Um, but my point here is this question here. Which of those... Reasons why we have laws are morally neutral, right? So there's a moral question on which things should be punished, which crimes should be punished. That's obviously a moral question, isn't it? All right, so this is a, what laws you have there, that's a moral question. Get that? Yeah? Protecting people from harm, well, which things are harms and which things should you protect? Which laws should you have to protect people? That's a moral question as well, isn't it? All right, so the, that's a moral question of what laws to have to protect people from what harms. Okay, um, protect society, again, who should be protected, how much should they be protected, what are you protecting them from, uh, these are all moral questions. To protect the environment, um, so um, is that, that's a moral question, the extent to which we should protect the environment, is it a good thing to protect the environment, what laws should we have to protect the environment, that's a moral question. What benefits society, again a moral question, um, which things are good for society, which things are bad for society. Redistribute wealth, the extent we want to do that or not do that, that's a moral question. Should the government try and redistribute wealth? Should it not? In what ways should it or shouldn't it? That's a moral question. Um, raising taxes, how high should taxes be? How much should the state try and fund things? These are moral questions, right? They're all moral questions, right? So my point is that every law, at, at the root, it's a moral question behind whether you have this law or not have this law, yeah? It's unavoidably a moral question. So all laws, whether you to have the law or not to have the law, either way, it's a moral question that we're asking here and that we're thinking about. Therefore, you followed that point, you can't not legislate morality, right? Because all laws enforce some kind of morality, yeah? There's no such thing as a morally neutral law, right? If you can think of one, let me know, all right? But I don't think there is one out there. No, no law that anybody has ever thought of is actually morally neutral. There's always a moral question. As to, is this a good thing to do or a bad thing to do? Is this the right thing to do or a wrong thing to do? 
Is it good for society, bad for society? Does it protect society, harm society? They're always moral questions, right? So every law enforces some kind of morality. All right? Every law does. All right? So at one level, this question, legislative morality, should you legislate morality? Can you legislate morality? Well, you can't not legislate morality. Are you following me so far? So to legislate is to legislate morality. Right? Whoever is legislating, whatever laws they're doing, they are legislating some morality in some form or other. You're getting this, yeah? Am I making the point enough, yeah? Good, great. Uh, so then the question is, whose morality is it? That is being legislated, right? That's the real question, not can we legislate morality. The question is, where are we getting those moral values from? Yeah? Following this? Yeah? Great. Now, I wanted to lighten up with a cartoon just to illustrate the point a little bit, okay? Um, here's a cartoon with two people talking to each other. One chap says, I think abortion is clearly the taking of an innocent life, innocent human life, so yeah, I think it should be illegal. Another chap replies, oh, you anti-abortion people, dude, you can't legislate morality. So the first chap says, okay, so you disagree with me when I say abortion should be illegal. Of course. Why? Well, because I think it's wrong to tell a woman what she can and can't do with her own body. Setting aside the silliness of the woman's own body argument for a moment, you said it's wrong to deny women abortions. That's a moral statement. All laws legislate morality. It's not that you don't want morality legislated, it's just that you want your morality legislated. All right? You follow that? Yep. Yeah? So, so there's the point, all laws legislate some kind of morality. The question is whose morality or what is the source of that, those laws? Or in other words, what is the source of the morality that the state is legislating? Okay, you following all this so far? Yeah, yeah? great. So now I'm going to take you on a logical step forward, right? Here's a proposition. In every culture, the source of law is the God of that society. That's a big statement, all right? Let me see if I can defend it to you um, as, as I go through some points. Here we are. The source of law determines what is right and wrong. Well, hang on a minute. Whatever determines what is right and wrong has got to be my God, right? If I, whatever I find is determining what's right and wrong for me, that's basically my God, isn't it? Right? Um, so, that the same thing applies in a society, right? If we're looking to something for the source of right and wrong, whatever that something is, that's the God of that society, right? Because that's determining what is right and wrong for that society, okay? Deciding what is just and what is fair same sort of argument applies, yeah? Whatever determines what's just and fair in a society, that's the God of that society. Whatever I look to to determine what's just and fair, it's basically my God, isn't it? Right? So whatever it is I'm looking to to determine what, what laws are just and fair, that's the God of the society. The ultimate concerns of the culture, well, the laws ultimately point to the ultimate concerns of the culture, what are it? Whatever is our ultimate concern, might be the environment, might be the people, might be just administering justice, whatever it might be, that, that is actually my God. That's our God. Right? So at a level, it is the case that whatever the source of our morality is, whatever the source of our laws is, is ultimately the God of that society. Right? So, and here's another point. If the source of law is man's reason, then reason is the God of that society. Yeah, we can make human reason, we can, we can idolise human reason, okay, and make that the God of our society, if we like. Uh, Chairman Mao said something like this, our God is none other than the masses of the Chinese people. Well, that's, you know, that's explicit, isn't it? That's basically our God. You know, we'll, we'll administer laws to the benefit of that God. You see that point? Yeah? So, in other words... In every culture, the source of law is the God of that society. You're following that so far? Yeah? 
So then let me take another leap forward. If we accept that, then at one level, law in every culture is religious in origin, right? Because it's coming from some source of morality, yeah? And uh, at one level, we're all, we're all worshippers because we're all human beings. Every society also has ultimate concerns. That's basically the god of that society. Therefore, all laws are coming from some religious perspective. Might not be acknowledged, right? Might be human reason is the god of that society. Might be um, promoting individual happiness or something like that is the god of that society, something like that. Some level, there's a, there's a religious aspect to it if we've accepted that laws coming from the ultimate concern, which is the god of that society. Um, therefore, a change in law is at one sense a change in religion. Because we've said, actually, we don't accept that source anymore. We're changing it to this source, right? We don't accept this source of what's right and what's wrong. We're going to change it to that source of what's right and wrong. Well, whatever the sources you've changed from to that one, you've changed the level of religion some way or other, yeah? So at some level, you're, you're always changing. If you're changing laws, you're changing allegiance to the source of law, your source of morality, ultimately your God. Therefore, at that level, there's no disestablishment of religion. You're always changing to some other religion. You're always changing to some other source of morality, which is effectively the God of that society. And let's remember that most religions are very intolerant of rival religions. They don't like criticism. They don't like people who want to criticize their God. All right? Um, let's have a think about human rights, because people always like to think about human rights in this respect. Okay? So how do human rights fit into this way of thinking about the world? Okay? Well, first of all, here's an obvious point. Human rights are an attempt to legislate morality, as is every other law anyway. All right? But human rights, you're trying to legislate morality. You're trying to say everyone should respect people's freedom of speech. That's a good thing, and they should, okay, because it's a biblical thing, all right? But that is an attempt to legislate morality. Let's recognize that, okay? Let's, let's up, be upfront about that. That's what you're trying to do here. Um, so then the question is, of course, what is the source of those rights? Well, it should be God, shouldn't it? It should be God, right? And there are various rights that God confers on human beings, all right, which include free will and freedom of expression and these kind of things, okay? Um, but the human rights, you know, the um, UN human rights, European human rights, um, don't point to God in that way. They are influenced by Christians and influenced by Christianity, but they don't actually deliberately acknowledge God. And so there's a sense in which these rights... Um, aren't always legitimate in the sense of, you know, who has given the right? Who has conferred this right on people? Well, if it's not God, it's, it's not, if it's not actually the God of the Bible, then it's actually something else, right, who we're looking to as the source of morality that is a rival to the God of the Bible, okay? Here's what Roger Scruton said. European society is rapidly jettisoning its Christian heritage and has found nothing to put in its place save the religion of human rights. Now, notice how Roger recognises it as a religion because all senses of where we're getting an ultimate source of morality, if, if people point to, as they quite like to, point to human rights as the ultimate source of morality, they're basically deifying human rights, right? They're saying human rights are our gods, or, you know, or the UN, whoever, you know, whoever confers these rights is the god, because that's the ultimate source of morality. Okay, well, that's a problem, right? Because actually you've lost the Christian basis for morality, which is what we did used to have. Roger Scruton is quite right on that. Okay, we used to look to God for our morality, and now we look to you know, this abstract thing of human rights, which is being used, actually, in some cases, to... Um, prevent Christians from expressing viewpoints. What happens when rights conflict? Which they do sometimes. Freedom of expression might conflict with somebody else's right not to be offended or whatever it might be. Where do these rights end? Your right to express your religion? Well, you know, some people argue all sorts of things for a right to express religion. Um, and and where, what's the limit to the right to express religion? Okay, in terms of how it might affect other people. 
sometimes. And then people argue for right to die, right to abortion, right to bear arms, right to family, right to not to be offended. Um, people, you know, we're becoming a almost a religion of rights, individual rights, okay? And if it's a religion of individual rights, we've basically made ourselves God, right? Because actually you can't upset me, right? This is why people always say, you know, you're, you've criticized my fundamental identity, right? Well, that's deifying my identity at one sense, isn't it, right? You can't criticize my God, gosh, you know? Um, so, you know, there's a level to which we've deified these rights. Um, and, of course, this is another aspect. Eisenhower said this, a people that values its privilege above all its principles soon loses both. And we have become a society that is very, very rights-oriented, and we teach that to our children as well. You've got these rights, these rights, these rights. Well, what about responsibilities, right? What about responsibilities? What about love your neighbour as yourself? Right? And what about teaching that first um, over rights? If we end up um, privileging rights or, or making rights the ultimate thing, then society will end up crumbling at one level because we're not looking out for each other and we're not taking responsibility for each other. Okay? So let's have a look at biblical law uh, for a few minutes um, when we think about legislating morality. Um, what is the purpose of biblical law? Well, at one level, biblical law identifies what is sin, doesn't it? Okay? So, Romans chapter 7, what shall we say? That the law is sin by no means yet. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known, I would not have known sin. I've not known what it is to cover. as an law not said, you shall not cover it. So the law shows us what sin is. By the works of the law, no human being will justify in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right? So, biblical law reveals what is sin and what isn't sin, and it's coming, obviously, from God. And it provides a standard of righteousness as well, doesn't it? The law of the Bible. Um, so, here's Psalm 19, one of my favourite psalms. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure making wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enjoying forever the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So it shows us what righteousness is and reveals righteousness um, to the world. And there's this important verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that's often sort of skipped over, uh, where Moses is revealing the Lord to the nation of Israel, and he compares their laws to the laws of other nations, right? And he's saying, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In other words, these laws are the best laws that any nation could have, right? It's, you know, other nations can have things, but they're not as good as these laws. These laws are the best laws. They are the most just laws. They're the most righteous laws. They're the best laws for anyone to have. And actually, when you see the prophets criticizing the other nations, they criticize them for not following, ultimately, biblical law, right? Even though they hadn't been given it in the same way that Israel had, okay? But these laws are the best laws for any nation, is what this is implying um, in this passage here in Deuteronomy, Okay? What about Jesus? Well, Jesus said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law. All the prophets have not come to abolish them, to fulfill them. Truly I say, unless, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus wants to uphold the law and has a very, very high view of the law of the Bible. So to conclude this section, whose law do we have? Well, all laws enforce some level of morality. If it's not God's law, then whose law is it? It's coming from somewhere. Natural law, some people point to natural law, that gets so far, but natural law doesn't reveal sin. The source of law is not nature, but God's, ultimately. Um, laws contrary to God's revealed will stand in deliberate rebellion against 
God. Think about that a minute. Because God has revealed his standard of righteousness and, and what's good. Lawlessness is also sinful. It expressly says that, doesn't it, in 1 John. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay? So legislating and not legislating both have moral questions, both involved there. So that is the end of part one. You'll be happy to know. All right? What about some objections to this idea that I've just thrown at you, this way of thinking about laws, right? Um, let's think about some objections that people raise um, to it. Here's a common one. Do you remember Tim Farron resigning um, from the Lib Dems party? And do you remember what it was about? Um, he'd been hounded, hadn't he? Is homosexual sex sinful? And hounded and hounded and hounded, and finally he capitulated and said no it was, and then um, obviously his conscience hit him about that, and so he repented and said no it is sinful, and I shouldn't have said that. And he came out and resigned from the Liberal Democrat Party over that. Credit to him for repenting and coming out and then deciding on principle that he should resign over this. But here's one of what, part of what he said in that resignation speech. He said, there are Christians in politics who take the view that they should impose the tenets of faith on society. But I have not taken that approach because I disagree with it. It's not liberal and it's counterproductive when it comes to advancing the gospel. So, of course, Tim Farron had supported gay marriage, for example. Okay? Um, even though we now know that he thinks that same-sex sex is sinful. Okay? So he's saying, I shouldn't impose my view on society. Right? Now, so how do we respond to that? Um, don't impose your faith. Well, bearing in mind that all laws come from some form of morality, if we're saying that Christians shouldn't, quote, impose their views, you're saying someone else should. Because all laws impose some morality. Right? Something, some form of morality is being imposed by our laws. Some form of morality is somewhere along the line. Okay? And if we're saying Christians shouldn't say this is the best morality, then you're saying, well, let someone else impose their morality, please. Thank you very much. So the point is, can you imagine someone arguing like this? I believe two men should be able to get married, but I wouldn't want to impose that on society, so I'll vote against legalising same-sex marriage. Nobody says that, right? Nobody thinks like that, right? You know, they want to impose it. Or somebody saying, I believe abortion's morally okay, but I wouldn't want to impose that, so I'll vote against legalising abortion. Nobody says that, right? They want to set up laws to impose this morality on society. Everyone does, right? Laws always impose, all right, and you can't avoid it, all right? I had this question on the BBC News once. I don't know if anybody saw that interview a few years ago. You know, you're imposing someone. I said, so are you, right? Because, you know, what you're doing is imposing a morality on society, you know? You can't avoid it, all right? So um, let's get over this point, you know? Somebody is, somebody's morality is being imposed. What's the best one? Very basic objection. You can't legislate morality. Well... It's not really true. You have to legislate morality. You can't avoid it. All right? And so, actually, those people who argue it's morally long to legislate morality, they, in fact, want to impose their morality on society. That's actually what's happening um, here. All right? Um, no one should force their morals on anyone else. Well, again, somebody's morality is being imposed. So, the question is whose? Right? All laws impose some form of morality on society somewhere down the line. All right. Uh, what about this one? Legislative morality is unenforceable. You can't force people to be good. Well, that's true, isn't it? Right? Um, but enforceability is not the ultimate standard of laws, right? We can't enforce all murder, right? We can't enforce every car theft. We can't enforce all the drug laws. We can't enforce all the prostitution laws. Does that mean we should just forget it? Let's legalize car theft and drugs and prostitution. Some people are arguing for legalising drugs and prostitution, right? You know, no, we shouldn't, right? You know, because we can't enforce it all the time, this actually has a very powerful um, deterrent effect um, and, and society effects in terms of teaching society that these things are wrong, okay? 
If we legalize an action, it actually means state approval of that action, right? You legalize abortion beyond a certain number of weeks, the state is saying, we approve of this. It is morally right to kill that baby after this number of weeks. And that is what society starts to believe, right, when you change the law. And also, it starts to oppose people opposing the law, right? It starts to say, you're not actually advocating for what is law. It's legal to do this. You shouldn't criticise it. Do you see what I mean? And it starts to, and then there's conscience objections and all these other things that start going on. And then you've got the things like Richard Page, who's in court tomorrow, who says a child would be better off with a mother and a father than with a same-sex couple. And the, the, the state says, right, can't be a magistrate, dismissed, because you're not supporting the law. See how powerful the law is, right? And what a big effect it has, right, in terms of what you legislate, what you don't legislate, societal approval of something. Well, that's, that's true as well, isn't it? Right? You can't change hearts. But you can restrain evil with laws. And you can change practice, right? Um, education is compulsory for children in this country. Everyone goes to school, right? Seatbelts became the law not that many years ago. Now everyone wears seatbelts, right? Everyone does because it's the law, right? Smoking used to be acceptable in the workplace, certainly in pubs and restaurants. I remember that. Um, now it's not. And guess what? Nobody does it. Nobody does it. You know, there's no smoking in pubs and restaurants or workplaces anymore because the law changed it. Right? See how powerful it is to change the law. It makes a massive, massive change on society. Right? And people start to accept that this is wrong. People used to think it's totally fine to smoke in workplaces and in pubs and restaurants. Now everyone thinks it's not okay to do that. Why is that? Because the law. Because the law changed. Right? That's why. Here's another example. Here in this country, we're not allowed to carry firearms, are we? Right? Nearly every person in this country thinks that it's wrong to carry firearms. In America, you're allowed to carry firearms. Lots and lots of people in America think it's okay to carry firearms. Why do we think it's not okay? Largely because that's the law. Right? Why do Americans think it is okay? Largely because that's the law. And I'm talking about Christians as well. Right? Lots and lots of Christians in America think it's okay to carry firearms. It's the right law to have. Lots and lots of Christians in this country think it's not. And we're all so influenced by the law, right? You know, it, it really influences the way we think about things. Because like, this is what is legal and therefore it must be right. It's what I'm used to being legal and therefore it must be right. Do you see how powerful it is in terms of teaching society what is right and wrong? I've already used these illustrations, but slavery is another one. Right? The, the power of making slavery legal, wow. You know, it went right across the, 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 the Navy changed from allowing slavery to actually going and catching slave ships and, and enforcing that slavery is wrong. Right? And now we all agree that slavery is wrong. And you know, I'd like to think that's because we've read the Bible, but actually it's probably because that's what the law is. Right? It, you know, it's changed the whole attitude of society, same smoking and, and marriage as well. You know, we changed marriage um, five years ago, was it? And, you know, now society thinks that same-sex marriage is right and good because the law has made it right. You see how powerful it is on society. And then they criticise people who don't agree with it, right? It, it really massively affects society. Okay, here's another objection. You can't criminalise sin. Well, that's true. You can't. So we need to differentiate between a sin and a crime. Because not all sins are crimes. Even in the Bible, unbelief is not a crime that is punished by the state. Right? Pride is not a crime that has a punishment by the state. Envy, <coughs> greed, selfishness, lust, covetousness, all these things... They're not crimes in the Old Testament, right? But they clearly are sins, right? So we need to distinguish there, right? We're not saying you should criminalise all sin. Nobody's saying that. Nobody ever said that, all right? So that's not the aim here. Some things should be punished by the state and, and things like murder and stealing and so on, but other things should not, right? And that's, that's clear in the Bible um, right from the beginning. 
Even in the Bible, worship of Yahweh was not enforced on aliens and strangers. There was religious freedom. Right? You didn't, they didn't have to participate in the cultic rituals, in the worship, in the sacrifices, that kind of thing. There was religious freedom there. But there was one law for all, that everyone had to abide by the law of the nation. Yeah? And whoever it was who stole something, they were punished in the same way and treated the same way, and, and so on. Whoever it was who who bribed or, or you know, committed theft or whatever it was, that was one law for everybody regardless where they were from, what nation they were from, what culture they were from, what religion they were from. One law for everybody. That's a biblical idea. Right? That's, that's totally coming from the Bible. What about this objection? As long as I don't hurt anyone, the government should leave me alone. Anything consensual is okay. That's the kind of thinking we have um, here a lot today. Okay? If it's consensual, then that's, it's, you know, nobody should make that illegal. Well, how do you know that anything consensual is okay? Notice the source of morality here. It's my consent. So I'm making myself the arbiter of what's right and wrong here, and effectively making myself God in that sense. All right? So this is a way of, you know, that's, that's where that's coming from. How do you know that anything consensual is okay? Is it really true that anything consensual is okay? Okay? How do you define hurt as long as I don't hurt anyone? Well, what determines what is hurt and what isn't hurt in that context? Who determines what's hurtful to you? That's your God, probably. Right? Yeah? And ultimately, if we really went down that route, it would be imposing immorality on society because you would legalise all sorts of destructive behaviours that damage society. Prostitution, paedophilia, drug addiction, gambling and so on. You'd legalise all these things. People say, it's consensual. Everyone should be allowed to do it. It's totally fine. And you'd end up with a very damaged and broken society as a result. So it's not a good way uh, to go. So we need to push back on this kind of argument. Um, and ultimately, what's done in private does matter, right? Because what's done in private is who you are. Who you are in private is who you are, isn't it? Right? So people who say it doesn't matter what you do in private, well, is that really right? No one lives in a moral vacuum in reality. Okay? We're all connected with other people. Leaders set a moral example for their followers. That's unavoidable. Right? They do, whether it's in business, whether it's in education, whether it's in law, whether it's whatever area it is, leaders set the moral tone of the organization. Do you think you can be racist in private and unprejudiced in public? Nobody thinks that. So why do they argue that it doesn't matter what you do in private, right? Because actually we really, we know that it does matter, right? You can't be racist in private and not, you know, and believe that you're not really racist underneath, right? Character matters. If you can't be trusted in private, you can't be trusted in public. You know, so it used to be that if a government minister committed adultery, he would be sacked immediately. Because if his wife can't trust him, then you know, if the closest person to him can't trust him, then the rest of us certainly can't. Right? Isn't that true? Right? If you can deceive the people you're closest to, how much easier are you going to find it to deceive the people you're far away from? Right? So, you know, if you're, if you're into deceiving people in private, you'll deceive people in public, definitely. There's the point. Therefore, we should vote morals over money, principle over party, character over cash. Here's another objection. In a pluralist society, there are no common values to legislate. People will say that kind of thing. Well, actually, pluralism is a set of moral values. Right? It is. It's saying all religions are equal, we should treat them all equally. That, where's that coming from? That's a moral idea, isn't it? Right? So, so, you know, don't try and say you're a neutral position here. You're not. All right? You've got a position as well on this, okay? And you're saying my position is better than yours, right? You're actually trying to impose your position on the rest of us. Okay? So don't try and claim some kind of clever neutrality here. You haven't got it. All right? You are trying to impose something on society. All cultures are not equal in terms of how they treat people, in terms of their respect for um, individual freedoms, and what is just and what is right, and treatment of women, and treatment of people of different religions, all that kind of thing. There's not equality amongst cultures. And ultimately, pluralism is unstable, because it's trying to say we've got more than one God. 
for our source of morality. Well, that, you know, that, ultimately that can't work because gods end up competing with each other and some, somebody will win out in the end. Of course, the, the great example of this is Parkfield School, which you've probably seen on the news, um, where the Muslims are protesting against the sex education. This, this is a pluralistic, so it's a clash between two gods, right? The Muslim god that says, no, we don't want LGBT education for our young children, and neither do we, right? And the liberal god that says we should encourage sexual freedom to everybody, and, and sexual freedom is one of our gods that we worship, right? There's a clash there, right? One of them is going to win, and the other is going to lose, right? Because pluralism can't ultimately work in these things. There will be a clash. Somebody's God will win in it, all right? And somebody's God will lose. You can't have these two pluralistic things coming together. Somebody has to impose a law that goes across all of society. Of course, people do believe moral relativism that, you know, actually, it doesn't matter. When I was working in the secular world, this kind of idea was very, very common that, you know, who am I to criticise someone else's culture, um, this kind of thing. Cultural relativism says we should respect all cultures equally, but they're not equal, okay? And moral relativism says moral values are relative to the local culture. So, you know, we shouldn't criticise someone else's moral values, particularly if they're from a different culture, because, you know, that's their culture. And that, you know. Well, let's have a think about that. There are many problems with this. Here's a few of them. How do you decide... If you accept moral relativism, how do you decide which culture a moral act is relative to? Right? Let's say I'm from, well, I'm from Britain, so let's use that as an example. And I wanna, and I, let's say I end up committing adultery with somebody, call her Jane, who's from another culture, and I do that in another nation from hers and mine. All right? And in the other nation, imagination, imagination? In this imagination nation, all right? Adultery is something that is encouraged. You're meant to commit adultery every week, right? And um, in Jane's culture, adultery carries the death penalty. And in my culture, adultery is sort of frowned upon. You know, well, so we've committed this act in imagination. You know, is it right or wrong? And you know, whose culture adjudicates this, right? Moral relativism has got no idea how to deal with that. Absolutely no idea. It's stuffed, right? because they think it's all culturally relative. Well, what if you have these mixes of cultures? You can't cope with it, right? It's a problem. What about the moral reformer's dilemma, right? If, if moral relativism is true, if cultural relativism is true, then it's wrong to change a culture. It's actually the most evil thing you can do, right? Therefore, someone like Martin Luther King was evil because he tried to change the culture. Therefore, Gandhi was evil because he tried to change the culture. Therefore, Wilberforce was evil because he tried to change the culture because he didn't accept moral relativism, right? So moral, moral relativism says that people who try and change culture are immoral. Do you see that? Yeah? But everyone knows that these people are heroes. Why do we know that? Because there is a transcendent moral standard. Moral relativism is completely false, absolutely false. And this is the best way to criticise people who believe in it. Say, you know, well, therefore, if you think culturalism is right, then obviously it was wrong to try and banish slavery, right? If you think this is right, then it is wrong for William Carey, I'm going to talk about, to go and ban Sati in India, all right? That was a wrong thing to do because he was saying that culture is wrong, right? You must have a transcendent source of morality to say that moral reformers are good. And some acts are clearly wrong regardless of culture anyway. I had this discussion once with um, Bob Geldof. And he said to me, There's no, there were no absolute moral values. So I said, OK, well, when is it OK, in your opinion, to rape someone then? And he stopped and thought for a minute and then said, well, I wouldn't ever rape someone. <laughs> there you go. There's one absolute moral value for starters. All right? You know? So therefore, there are absolute moral values. So start talking with a sense to me. Right. <clears throat> and of course, moral relativism does prevent criticism of another society. And, you know, and this, is, this is a problem. You know, people are saying you can't criticise Islamic society, even though it, it requires criticism because of their treatment of women, amongst other things, as well as people who want to change religion, and so on. 
What about this one? Religion should be kept private. It's all very well for you to believe whatever you like, but don't try and bring it into politics, right? Don't try and bring it into politics, okay? Don't try and actually talk about it or appeal to your God or your beliefs. That's wrong, okay? Richard Page, absolutely in there on this one. Um, is that right? Should religious beliefs be kept out of politics? Okay, we're start sadly, we're starting to accept this, aren't we? A lot of Christians accept this um, viewpoint and think we shouldn't try and appeal to God. Well, if that's really the case, you know, if there's a particular worldview you can't appeal to in politics, then the state has become anti that worldview. All right? They're actually saying we are not accepting your worldview as a, as a legitimate basis for any moral argument. Right? We're not accepting your worldview as a legitimate basis in politics, therefore they're anti that worldview. So if they're saying you can't appeal to God, they're anti-God, actually. That's where they are. Some, they're appealing to some source of morality. Everybody's appealing to some source of morality, but you can't appeal to your God. Well, that's a problem, right? That's, that's become anti-Christian then, if that's really the case. And at another level, if religious belief can't be appealed to, then the state has endorsed naturalism as the only acceptable worldview. You know, the only, the only way to really appeal to laws is naturalism, then you've basically said, that's our worldview. That's our only way to determine what's right and wrong. And that's our religion as a state, right? You can only appeal to this religion, this religious perspective, and that is the state's perspective, isn't it? Right? Um, and furthermore, if there's no transcendent source of morality, then the state is in danger of becoming God, isn't it? Right? Because the state is saying you can't criticize our morality. You can't criticize it. You've got no basis. You can't appeal to a higher authority because we're not accepting that. Therefore, they've become God. Right? They're saying we determine what is right and wrong. Don't try and point to your God. We don't believe in him. Right? Then they've become God. That's statism, effectively. Right? Making the state God. This is why reduction of religious freedom tends to lead to reduction of freedom in general. Okay? Because once they become anti-religion, anti-appealing to, to God, then you're, you're starting to go down the line of losing all kinds of other freedoms. Freedom of religion is often called the first freedom. When you lose that one, you start to lose all the others as well, because actually it's the basis of all the others. Right? It's, the, it's the basis of all the others in there. Um, some policy implications. So we've got to, you can't not legislate morality. We've got to the source of all morality, the source of laws for all societies is at one level religious. Okay, and we've dealt with various objections. So what are some policy implications? Should rape be illegal? It should, right? Um, should prostitution be illegal? Should paedophilia be illegal? Why is it? Why should they? Because God says so, right? Actually, right, is the bottom line on this. There are many other arguments as well in terms of benefits to society, disbenefits to society, the way that people get exploited, sex slavery, all these other things. You know, but ultimately, it's because God says so, right? Should bestiality be illegal? You know, people are starting to say no, right? Um, should homosexual sex be illegal? Again, I appeal to God's law as well as various other natural law arguments that can be appealed to um, on that. Should abortion be illegal? Again, I appeal to God's law. Right? We, you know, God's law is the ultimate standard um, for all these things uh, at the end of the day. And we're thinking about picking up on abortion. Um, abortion has been legalised in this country since 1967. It's now at 24 weeks. Um, because it's legal, because it's legal, one in three women have had an abortion. Sex-selective abortions are carried out. Uh, disabled and handicapped babies are aborted right up to birth. 38% of abortions in 2017, the most recent year for statistics, were repeat abortions. Abortion is sometimes viewed as a form of contraception. Uh, abortion rates reflect increasing levels of promiscuity. British Medical Association voted to decriminalise abortion right up to term. And this is likely to come into Parliament later this year, proposals to say you should be allowed to kill your baby right up to the day before birth. Because abortion is sort of accepted in society, and men as well as women feel the guilt of killing a human being because it's legal. Right? Um, where it's not legislated, where it's not legal, in Northern Ireland, 
okay, a campaign group called Both Lives Matter put up billboards in Northern Ireland saying 100,000 people are alive today because abortion is illegal in Northern Ireland. 100,000 people are alive today because abortion is illegal in Northern Ireland. That's a very powerful statistic. So it was challenged. There was complaints to the Advertising Standards Authority. That can't be right. So guess what? The Advertising Standards Authority investigated and they said, you know what? It is right. Right? They backed it up, said, yeah, we, we agree with the statistical analysis they've done there. 100,000 people are alive today because of the abortion laws in Northern Ireland. That's such a powerful statistic. We need to repeat it over and over and over again. Right? 100,000 people are alive today because abortion is illegal. How powerful is that? Right? It's amazing. So you see the, the how, how, what a powerful effect it has, whether you legislate or don't legislate um, against something um, in society. And of course, we know that this affects families. The breakdown of family is partly because we've legislated in that way. 75% are more likely to fail at school, not brought up in a two-parent home. 70% more likely to be a drug addict. 50% more likely to have alcohol problem. 40% more likely to have debt problems. 35% more likely to experience unemployment, welfare, dependency, and there are many other statistics like that. It has an effect on the whole of society. The whole, and this is a massive cost to society. These figures are a massive cost to society. These people who are ending up not, not contributing but causing problems for society. Um, in fact, it's been, it's been um, costed at £48 billion a year, right? Which is a massive amount. Think about that, you know, £48 billion. So, you know, people talk about, should we focus on money or morality, right? Well, part of the point here is that it, it's not really an either-or. Immorality costs. It costs in many, many ways, but it does actually cost money as well, right? So, you know, let's focus on morality because it actually will have a whole economic effect as well on society. Is having money more important than having morals? No, it isn't. More money is not the answer. In Proverbs it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Money without morality is materialistic madness. We have everything to live with, but nothing to live by. That's such a powerful thing. We have everything to live with, but nothing to live by. We need to focus on morality in our nation. And it's got to come from God. It's got to come from Christian revival, ultimately. All right? So let's look at a couple of examples, which I've mentioned briefly. William Wilberforce was a moral reformer. Gosh, you know, he criticised the culture. God, mate, you know, terrible if you believe in moral relativism. Okay? Um, he campaigned to outlaw slavery across the British Empire. He based his arguments on the immorality of treating human beings as slaves. He was legislating morality, right? That's what he wanted to do, and that's what he ended up achieving. He also campaigned to abolish the National Lottery, on moral grounds, did you know that? Yeah, we reinstated the National Lottery um, 10 or 20 years ago, and but William Wilberforce had abolished it because it's bad for society, right? He abolished slavery and abolished the National Lottery as well. Um, and he saw the value of changing laws to change the morality of our nation. He's regarded as a hero today for doing just that, right? Changing the laws of society. William Carey was a missionary to India, translated the Bible into several Indian languages, was horrified when he witnessed the practice of sati, the Hindu practice of burning the widows alive. So do you know what happens? The, the man dies, and, and, and when they bury him, they take the women who are married to him, and they burn them all alive with him. Um, obviously, that's terrible for those women, and it also orphans all the children immediately as well. It's a horrible, terrible practice, okay? But William Carey thought, no, 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 this is their culture, you know? They've had it for many, many years. Better not disturb that. No, he didn't. Right? You know, but people could argue that, right? A moral relativist has to say, can't change their culture. They've had that for many, many years. It's part of their religion. Better not change that. No, no, no. William Carey, this is wrong. Right? It's evil. Okay? It's killing people. It's orphaning people. We need to stop it. And he campaigned to outlaw it, campaigned for 25 years to say we should make this illegal in India, and eventually, after 25 years, they did make it illegal. He also campaigned against polygamy, female infanticide, child marriage, euthanasia, and burning lepers alive. 
He was a moral reformer, and he was someone who campaigned to legislate morality. <coughs> Finally, here's a quote from somebody you probably all heard of, Martin Luther King Jr., who campaigned um, in America against racism and segregation. Here's, what, here's something that he said now. The other myth that gets around is the idea that legislation cannot really solve the problem and it has no great role to play in this period of societal change because you've got to change the heart and you can't change the heart through legislation. You can't legislate morals. The job must be done through education and religion. Well, there's a half-truth involved here. Certainly, if the problem is to be solved, then in the final sense, hearts must be changed. Religion and education must play a great role in changing the heart but we must go on to say that while it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behaviour can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. Great points, hey? Guess where I found that? In a government document about legislating homosexuality. Okay? They know the value of legislating morality. Right? They know where they get it from. Okay, so to conclude, I think you got this message, yeah? Good. To legislate is to legislate morality. In every culture, the source of law is the God of that society. If it's not God's law, whose law is it? And as I said, woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. Amos said, hate evil, love God, love good, maintain justice, in the courts and surely that's what we need to do.